In 2013, Dove launched a campaign called You're More Beautiful Than You Think. And the purpose behind the campaign was to help women to see that they are, in fact, more beautiful than they think. In order to do so, they brought in a forensic artist who had trained with the FBI and with all the women who participated to do two drawings of them. One from the perspective of the woman herself and another drawing from the perspective of a stranger who had just met that same woman. So, two images, two portraits of the same person. For the, for the first one, the artist would be looking away, never having seen or met that woman, and the woman would describe how she thinks she looks, and the artist would draw her from what he hears. The second one, a stranger is describing the same person, but from their perspective as well. And when they showed the difference in pictures, the people were stunned and amazed at the differences. You can see some of them right here on the screen behind me. The picture on the left is the self-described version of the same person, the self-described portrait. The picture on the right for each of them, for each of the couplets, is the one described by a stranger. According to the artist himself, in the one self-described portrait, he said that often the women, when they were describing themselves, would overemphasize small things like blemishes or wrinkles or even a very small scar. Whereas in the second version, the one described by a stranger, he said that they were just describing ordinary, beautiful people. In the campaign, they showed that, in fact, women are more beautiful than they think. But they also showed that how we think matters. How we think about ourselves matters in respect to our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with others. And isn't it also true that how we think about other people and things also matters? It impacts our relationship with them and even our ability to love them well. That how we think matters. We're in a sermon series here at Tenth called Living Love where we've been looking at the greatest commandment from Jesus, from Mark 12. And in this greatest commandment, Jesus is helping us to see what is most essential in following God. So if you've ever wondered, what is most essential in following God? Well, you are in the right place. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Mark 12. You can pull out a physical one, a digital one, or if you want to follow along on the screen behind me, you can do so. So Mark 12. One of the teachers of the law, seeing them debate, noticed that Jesus had given a good answer. And so he asked the question, what is the most important of all the commandments? The most important commandment, said Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In this greatest commandment, Jesus is responding to a very direct question. The question is coming from one of the teachers of the law who sees a debate going on between Jesus and these Pharisees and sees that Jesus is answering the questions really well. And so he approaches Jesus wanting to learn from him. 
And he asked the question, what is the most important commandment? This teacher, just as Jesus and the other teachers knew, that there were 613 commandments, 613 basic ways that people were meant to follow God, that the people of Israel were meant to follow him, some things that they should do and some things that they shouldn't do. But this teacher wanting to learn from Jesus asks, what is the core of the commandments? What is the most important? What is most essential in following God? And Jesus, in return, offers this greatest commandment. And he offers five things. He says, love God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the greatest commandment, which we've been looking at in this sermon series. And this week, we're right in the middle of the greatest commandment. And we're going to be looking together of what it means to love God with our minds. I know many of you very well, and if we sat together, I'm sure we could brainstorm some ways that we could love God with our minds well, couldn't we? I think of Sabine, my wife, and who works as a pediatrician in the city. So she's a medical doctor who works with kids. And when she utilizes her training, her reason, and her mental faculties to offer sometimes life-saving care for children, she not only cares and loves those kids, but she loves God as well. I think of my friend Chris, who's a trained engineer, and he has one of the coolest jobs on the planet. He literally designs roller coasters. It's true. And I've talked with him, and he said, uh, when he designs a roller coaster, he gets so much joy seeing the, the laughter and fun that people have riding one of his roller coasters, that in doing so, he loves people. But he said God has given him this capacity to use his mind to bless others, and in doing so, he loves and worships God when he designs cool and fun roller coasters for people to ride on. If I were to sit with you, I think you could name a number of different ways that we could love God well with our minds, couldn't we? In our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. But perhaps the most important, or at least one of the most central ways that we love God with our minds is the ways that we think about God. The writer A.W. Tozer said it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is important. Tozer says it's the most important thing about us, but he would go on to say it's important with respect to how we see others and how we see God. That what comes into our mind, what we think about God matters. And so, if how we think about things matters, Tozer says that one of the most important ways, if not the most important way that we could love God with our minds is how we think about him. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Okay, I'm going to do an interactive exercise with all of you. And so, if you have the internet on your phone, if you're here in person or online, you can pull it out. This is a trust exercise. No texting, please. You can go to menti.com, M-E-N-T-I.com, and you can put in this code. It's not that code. I'm not sure why that one's up there. It's a different one. So uh, let me give you a different one. 7487. That's the right one? 
Okay. 6887-264. This is why I'm grateful we have an amazing tech team, because even if things change between services, that they're fixing it. So, okay, don't listen to me. Listen to Joel, our tech producer. Go to menti.com and put in this code. Ignore everything else I said before that. And when you get there, it'll uh, give you a page. looks a little bit like this. It'll say, what comes into your mind when you think about God? And you can write in up to three different answers. And so I'll do it right now as well. Put in three different answers of what comes to your mind when you think about God. And then when you're done, you can press submit. And so this is a live version of what some of you have submitted. What comes into your mind, 10th Church, in person and online, when you think about God? The answers in the middle are the ones that are the most common among you. Things like love and grace and mercy and hope and father and forgiveness. Some of the ones on the outside are ones that maybe have only been mentioned once or twice. Things like compassion, ultimate love, righteousness, leader, greatness. What comes into your mind when you think about God? In a community like 10th, which is very diverse, diverse culturally, diverse in age, diverse in faith experience, some of us having grown up in the church and some of us maybe being at church for the first time and exploring God. What comes into your mind when you think about God matters. And in a church as diverse as 10th, you can see there's a diverse perspective, some that we share in common, but also some diversity. And in light of that diversity, which is true, how do we think well about God? If how we think about things is important and matters in our relationship to them and ability to relate and love well to them, how do we learn to think well about God. A number of years ago, actually, sorry, from the very early days of our relationship, Sabin and I have been in the practice of doing a weekly date night. A time where we get together, maybe we go out for coffee or dinner or even just hang out at home. And the whole purpose of our date night is to connect, to delight in our relationship together, to spend time with one another. And one of the added benefits of this date night has been not only that us learning to delight more in each other, but I've had the opportunity to get to know Sabin more as I've heard her dreams, her hopes, learned about her day, heard stories about her past. And as I've connected and heard her story, I've come to know more about who she is and to think more rightly about her. And then as I've learned to think better about Sabin, to think more truly and accurately about who she is, it's impacted our relationship and even my ability to love her well. In a similar way, for a number of years, I had a date day or a date few hours with God. I used to do this on my Sabbath. I would go to a nearby coffee shop in the city, sit for a few hours. Sometimes I would sit in prayer, but most of the time I would bring my Bible. And like my date night with Sabin, the purpose of this date time with God was not to read certain passages or to get through a, you know, a checklist of things to learn about God, but simply to delight in him. But similarly too, one of the added benefits of that date time with God has been over time, learning to think well, to think rightly, to think truly 
about who God is. And in my experience, there's been no better place to learn to do this better than in and through engaging in Scripture, in and through reading the Bible. Now, I recognize that for some of you, this feels like a really churchy answer, doesn't it? Of course, the Bible. Pastor Craig's going to tell me to read the Bible. But I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up around the Bible. And for me, in years of coming into faith and learning to think about God and learning to try and think well and truly and accurately about who God is, there has been no practice more shaping in my life than engaging in Scripture. That doesn't mean the other practices have been unimportant, but there's been no place where I've learned more consistently and helpfully to think rightly about God than engaging in Scripture. The engaging in Scripture has even shaped some of my other practices. Every now and again, I'll sit with people in our community, and one of the questions I, I get is, how do I know whether the things that I'm hearing in prayer are God's voice or just random thoughts bouncing around in my mind? It's a good question. And I think there are a number of answers, but one of the ones that I think are most important in learning to discern God's voice in prayer is engaging in Scripture. That in Scripture, we learn to hear more about what God's voice sounds like, and we learn to see his character as we engage in his story. As we learn to hear what God's voice sounds like over here, when we go back into our own life and our own prayer life, we learn to discern better what God's voice sounds like over here. Just as when I hear about Sabine's story, I better learn to think more accurately and truly about who she is, and in turn, love her well. So too, as we engage in God's story, we learn to think more rightly and truly and accurately about who he is. That it truly matters how we think about things, doesn't it? I mean, imagine, for example, that I thought that Sabine was cruel and capricious and short-tempered, which she absolutely is the opposite of all of those things. But that would impact my relationship to her, wouldn't it? Some of you see some of you sitting with partners or friends. Imagine that you thought differently about them than who they were. That would shape your relationship to them, wouldn't it? Imagine that I thought Carlos was selfish and self-centered. Again, the opposite of who I know Carlos to be. But that would vastly change our relationship to one another. That how we think about people and things matters, and it changes our relationship to them. And in our relationship with God, as we seek to think well, to think rightly about him, it's a journey, it's a process. But one of the most helpful practices that we can engage in to help us to think well and rightly about God is engaging in scripture. Do you have a regular time, every day, every week, or even every month, to sit and delight in God through scripture? To learn more about who he is, and how to think rightly and accurately about him so that we can have a good and true relationship with him. If you're wanting to restart or start a practice of engaging in scripture, there's many great apps. The Read Scripture app is one of the ones that our staff are going through uh, during our, our staff lunch breaks. We're opening up this app together and reading through the Bible over the course of a year. But if you're wanting to get into the practice of reading or rereading the physical Bible, a physical copy of the Bible, maybe you don't have one. 
If you'd like one today, you can come and chat with Abe after the service. We have a number of physical copies of the Bible up front, and we'd love to gift you one. We've got a whole bunch on the front pew. Please come and talk with Abe if you'd like one. He'd love to give one to you. But as we seek to think truly and rightly about God through Scripture, I'd mentioned earlier that it's a journey and a process. And there can be companions that we can use to set alongside us as we read Scripture and we learn to think well and rightly about God. For me, one of the most helpful companions as I've been reading Scripture, especially for the last six or seven years, has been something called the Bible Project. The Bible Project is a nonprofit that is best known for making videos, free videos, on YouTube or on their website that are about the books of the Bible or about God's character or about different themes that you find throughout Scripture. And for me, even as I'm planning a sermon or engaging in a sermon series, it's one of the first places that I'll often start with is watching one of those Bible Project videos about the the book of the Bible that we're engaging in together as a community. I also wish um, I'd had their app. They have a new app that they just put out. And I really wish that I'd had this app when I started reading the Bible because it's, I think, the best resource today for learning to read Scripture well. And it's free. It offers seminary-quality education and helps to train you to read the Bible well. I think it's one of the best apps that you can engage in today in learning to read the Bible well. It's just called the Bible Project app, and you can download it for free. And so if you're wanting to think about God well by engaging in Scripture and looking for a companion as you do so, the Bible Project can be a great one for you, and it's all free. We also happen to have one of the best seminaries in the world in our backyard here in Vancouver at Regent College. You can take a summer school course there. You can go to their library and take or to read stuff for free. They have uh, audio recordings of a number of their courses that you can go down there and just listen to for free. You can buy courses on their website. We have one of the best seminaries in our backyard here, Regent College. So I invite you, if you're looking for companions as you're seeking to read the Bible, the Bible Project and Regent College can be really good companions for you as you do so. How we think about God matters. It changes our relationship to him. And reading scripture can be one of the formative ways that we can learn to think about God well, to love him with our minds. A number of years ago, I read a biography about Augustine who was a follower of Jesus from the 4th to 5th centuries who lived in North Africa. When Augustine was quite old, he was frail and tired, and he very rarely left his room. And when he passed away, his closest friends and his companions who lived in the monastic community with him went into his room and were amazed at what they saw. Surrounded all around the walls of his room, or passages of scripture pinned to the walls. That scripture had been one of the companions for Augustine as he came to know God, and over the years following had been a great companion as he sought to know God in and through scripture. And in his old age, he wanted to spend more of his time with God, and scripture was one of the best places for him to do so. And so he wanted to hang passages of scripture on all of his walls in order that he could come to know and love God more in his old age. But fortunately, we don't need to redecorate the rooms of our homes or our rooms, 
or the walls of our rooms or our homes in order to come to love God well through Scripture. Fortunately. Because one of the ways that we can come to love God well through Scripture is by redecorating the walls of our minds through memorizing the Bible. That when we memorize a passage of Scripture, it's like we redecorate the walls of our minds by, similar to Augustine, pasting this passage of Scripture on the internal walls of our mind. And it comes to shape who we are. Dallas Willard, before he passed, was the professor of philosophy at the University of California in Los Angeles and one of the foremost writers on the spiritual life, someone whose writings have, have aged very well, someone who I still love to read today. In his book, uh, in one of his books, Dallas Willard says, through memorization, God's word comes to reside in our body, in our social environment, in the constant orientation of the will, and in the depths of our soul. That for Augustine... Again, one of the foremost writers on the spiritual life, on what it looks like to love God, to know God, and to be shaped by him. For him, the foremost practice in coming to know and to love God is the practice of memorizing scripture. That as we paste passages of scripture on the internal walls of our mind, that it shapes us. In the words of Willard, it shapes the orientation of our will and our social environment and come to rest in the depths of our souls. That it changes who we are and the ways that we see the world. And no person has better lived this than Jesus. When you read the Gospels, uh, if you've ever seen at the bottom, there's often footnotes there. Maybe you'll have noticed that there are Bible passages at the bottom of the Gospels and the footnotes. If you've ever wondered what they are, you're not alone. But they're typically references of where somebody in the passage is referencing or directly quoting a passage of Scripture. And if you read the Gospel, the person who most quotes the Bible, who most quotes the Scriptures, is Jesus himself. That Jesus had so embodied the Scriptures through memorization and reading and simply living them, that when people asked him questions and hung out with him, that Jesus was simply quoting the scriptures again and again and again. It's like through his life he was chewing on the scriptures as he seeked to live them. And as they asked him questions and engaged with him, they naturally came out of who he was. That the scriptures shaped Jesus, how he saw himself, how he saw his mission, and how he saw God. It even shaped how Jesus saw his own suffering. In the final moments of his life before Jesus gave up his soul to God the Father, Jesus quoted a passage, goes like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This wasn't just a cry of the heart. Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, the first few lines from Psalm 22. That in the space of his suffering, Jesus was drawing on the Psalms to make sense of what was happening and to frame what was happening around him. If you've ever read Psalm 22, then you'll know that there's a turn that happens in the first five verses where the psalmist experiences both this experience of being forsaken by God, but also knowing that God is good and saving. So here are the first five verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. 
By night I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. That Jesus in drawing on Psalm 22 using the words of the psalmist is recognizing that feeling of alienation and forsakenness that he feels on the cross, but also drawing on a bigger story that the psalmist here is quoting. That even in his own suffering, knowing that God would redeem, that God would save, that God was good and that God was holy. That in that passage, God was trusting Jesus was trusting in God the Father. We see the reality of that three days later, the fruit of that trust. And three days later, Jesus was raised from death back to life in the resurrection. That Jesus had so embodied the scriptures by hearing them, by reading them, by memorizing them, that it shaped his whole life. It even shaped his experience of suffering. And as we come to embody and imbibe the scriptures through memorization and reading, they come to shape our own experiences, both the joys of our lives and even the sufferings of our life as well. To see that even in the darkest places of our life, that God is still good and will save us. That how we think about God matters. It shapes us. It shapes our perceptions of ourselves and our lives. It shapes how we think about God. And how we think about God matters because it changes our relationship to him. But more important than what we think about God is what God thinks about us. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, says these words. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think about God. By God himself, It is not the most important thing. How God thinks about us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks about us. Lewis would go on to say that one day all of us will stand before God. And if the weight of our eternity, the weight of our glory, was on what we thought about God only, then that is truly an unbearable weight. That the weight is on us to think perfectly about God. But for Lewis, if it's all about how God thinks about us first and foremost, then that is a true, freely, a freeing gift. That how we think about God does matter. But how God thinks about us matters even more. And there is no place where we see how God thinks about us more truly than on the cross. That Jesus not only chose to come into a human body, chose to live a perfect life, but he chose to give that life on the cross to take the weight of our sin, our shame, and our guilt, and the death that we deserve on himself, that he in turn could give life. More important than how we think about God is how God thinks about us. And how does God think about us? In the words of the gospel writer John, in an oft-quoted, oft-memorized passage from 
John 3.16, which you'll see right here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. How does God think about you? God thinks love towards you. And the window through which we come to think well about God, but also to understand how God thinks about us, is the window of the cross. We come to see that Jesus thinks love about us, so much so that he would give his own life for us. How we think about God matters. It changes our relationship to him. But even more than that is how God thinks about us. That God sees us through the window of the cross. The life-giving, life-saving action of Jesus where he embodies his love for us and shows more clearly and truly than anywhere else how he thinks about you. Just like the Real Beauty campaign by Dove that invited women to see themselves through the eyes of another, so too Jesus invites us to see ourselves through the eyes of another, through the eyes of God himself, through the window of the cross that showed that it's true. How we think about God matters. But how God thinks about us and seeing ourselves through his eyes, through the window of the cross, matters even more. What we think about God matters, but what God thinks about us matters even more. How does God think about you? God thinks and lives love towards you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the cross. The window through which we see and learn to think well about who you are. We thank you too that through the window of the cross, we also see how you think about us. That you think and live love towards us. I pray that this week that we could come to see you more fully and truly and beautifully through the window of the cross, through the scriptures, and by in memorizing them, pasting the scriptures to the walls of our mind. But even more so, to see that you think and live love towards us and to live in that reality. We thank you for your great love for us, May it continue to transform us as we seek to love you well with our minds. Pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.